Welcome everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm in one of my favorite places on earth, a place I return to all the time where I live, where I hang out with my kids, where I recharge my batteries. That is the New Forest in Southern England. You may have heard me mention it a few times in this podcast. It's called the New Forest, folks, because uh, it was set up by William the Conqueror around a thousand years ago. So it is reasonably new as far as things go here in the UK. I'm here with Team History. I've got Yana, trusty producer with me. How do I get here? Well, of course, I use my electric car. You've heard me talking about my electric car. That battery needs recharging as well. And now there's a partnership between BMW and National Parks UK to enhance electric car charging networks across all 15 national parks, making travel by electric vehicles to these locations much easier, which is great because now when I drive across the country, I can recharge a national park, not in a motorway services. I can have a little hike, recharge myself on the journey as well as the car, it's fantastic. They're also supporting local initiatives focused on enabling nature restoration, biodiversity and well-being through the Recharge in Nature Fund. So to discover more about the Recharge in Nature project, go to bmw.co.uk slash nationalparks. I'm on my way to meet someone I have enormous respect for. He's called Richard Reeves. He is an archaeologist. He's a naturalist. He's an enthusiast. He's a storyteller. He's a historian, as you'll hear. There's nothing he does not know about the New Forest. I sit at his feet and learn. He takes me, he takes my kids out, and we go on massive stomps through the forest, through different time periods, from the Stone Age to the 21st century. It's a great opportunity to introduce you to one of my favorite people, Richard Reeves. Let's go say hello to him. So Richard, how's it going? All good. Yeah, good all to be good. back out in the forest with you, man. It's always, always a pleasure. So let's describe where we are. I guess right, hiding, obviously it started to rain naturally. Standing in some big old holly bushes, some having their little lovely red fruit, others, the males without, and then look out across that valley. Tell me what we can see. Well, I mean, this is really very much the landscape you'd expect in the forest if you knew the forest. A lot of people think of forest as being solid areas of woodland, but Actually, you know, historically, a forest is an area of hunting ground. So it's actually a mix of habitats. It can include villages, in fact. And so here we've got a valley which is largely lowland heath, but there's broken woodland. And then down in that more open heathland, we've got a little herd of deer walking through. Yeah, so we've got some fallow deer down there. And of course, that is the beast of the forest. You know, the deer is very much core to a forest. And in, it was the Norman kings who actually set up the new forest who actually introduced the fallow potentially back to the forest, and they are the dominant species of deer today. And so it's the new forest. A lot of North Americans particularly say to me, you live in the new forest, is that like a new subdivision? How old is the new forest? Well, the new forest was set up by William the Conqueror. We don't know the date. I mean, there's an additional date that's always bandied about, which is 1079, but that's not the case. All we know is that it was actually made by William the Conqueror, or at least designated, but it was designated on top of an existing Anglo-Saxon hunting ground. It's just we didn't have forest law. The, the Normans imported that forest law. So when we talk about forest law, Yes. How is that different to common law? Is it an extra, it's an extra layer. layer of rules you've got to abide by? Yes, so forest law is this extra layer, if you like. So common law still exists, but the forest law, if you like... So you can't kill anyone? No, you say, I mean, you still have the, the standard things. Obviously, 
the forest is a good place if you're an outlaw to get away and hide. Everyone's heard of Robin Hood and those sort of characters certainly existed within the forest. However, um, the forest law was really there, like I say, to preserve the forest for the king's benefit, you know, in terms of hunting the animals. So you weren't allowed to go around and just cut the wood. You weren't allowed to just go around and take the deer. So if you were in an Anglo-Saxon setting, basically if a deer wandered onto your ground, you could hunt it and kill it and then go and have a nice, nice bit of venison. That's all very good. But in the forest, all of the deer belonged to the crown. And in certain cases, there were different levels. So if a deer was actually hunted and it actually went outside the bounds of the forest, they could make a proclamation. And with that proclamation, they could say, you know, this deer has been hunted by the king. He's given the king plenty of pleasure and we wish him to be protected. And you're not allowed to... Really? <laughs> Basically, yeah. So even if a deer went outside the forest, in certain cases, those deer could be protected. Uh, and is it true that sometimes there were sort of periods between kings, things were a bit messy or there were a bit of civil war, there would often be a real bout of killing of deer, of gathering of firewood, of local people taking yeah. advantage of that. Is that, is that yeah, a thing? When, whenever the forest officers were distracted, you bet the locals were in there taking the most advantage from it. But of course, as has always been the case, it's often those in charge who are the worst offenders. So a younger brother of the king or a, a royal cousin might be put in charge of the new forest and he might exploit it and behave naughtily himself. There's that potential. I'm um, usually it's sort of the lower ranking officers. I mean, certainly by the 18th century, a lot of the official posts in the forest were very much exploited. It's quite interesting as a lot of the actual people that were appointed to the official positions during the 18th century were actually political people. In fact, almost all of them were, had held some political office. They were MPs of one place or another. So it was part of that old corruption, part of the government Ensuring their majority in the House of Commons by handing out nice little plum jobs to people. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's all about sort of, you know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. What about the commoners' rights here? Commoners Why rights. are we still rights. seeing in the autumn when the acorns fall, pigs get let through the forest? We've seen grazing donkeys, we've seen grazing ponies here. That's not typical if you go around the rest of the British landscape. No, but I mean, you know, up until fairly recently, it was still an economically viable way of farming. Obviously in southern England and with the cost of land holdings, especially in somewhere as busy as southern England, you know, the cost of land makes it totally unenviable as an economic sort of way of life. So if you want to have 10 cows, you either have to buy a big old chunk of land and let them graze on your own private land, or you become a commoner here and you can graze your cows on this communal space, is that right? Yes, you still have to have the land that you can take the animals off if you need to. But, I mean, if you think about how it operated in the medieval period, and the medieval period of commoning was, was somewhat different. But you could turn your animals out during the summer and set aside all of your ground to grow hay. Okay. That meant you had a load more hay for the winter. So when you brought your animals off the forest, they had a load of hay to support them off the forest. Now, if you imagine you're just a farmer, and you've got to keep your animals on your land all the time. There's only a certain amount of land that you can keep your animals on, as well as grow hay for them to keep them over winter. So that common land is land that's going to be exploited communally, in common? In common. With common rights and therefore the access to common land, you can keep many more stock than you would otherwise be able to keep. And why is that tradition continued here in the New Forest, where it's not in, you know, other parts of the country? Well, as I said, it was economically, it was still viable up until fairly recently. Um, 
and there's the strong traditions involved with that so those strong traditions are still form the core of the common community and there's still people that wish to you know wish to take on that lifestyle yeah so here we are we're just now approaching one of these medieval lodge sites now if you look on an ordnance survey map they're called royal hunting lodges in the whole they are just the lodge sites for the medieval foresters the people that are in charge of looking after the different areas of the forest and these would have been the, the foot foresters not the chief foresters these would have been the foot forester living out here being on the site looking out for poachers and doing the maintenance in the woodland that they uh, that they need to support the deer maybe pollarding the trees and such like but, so, but if the king had been rampaging across this countryside he might have overnighted in one absolutely and so when you get to the period of edward iii we actually have accounts from where they were some of these lodges were upgraded to benefit the king so when the king was actually out hunting he'd use some of these lodge sites as a base for hunting now one of those particular was a one called hathborough and Hathborough Lodge was so well upgraded it had its own chapel and longhouse as well as all the other buildings and stables you'd expect within a normal lodging site. So you've also got this sort of raise in status that brings it up to this royal hunting lodge status. But on the whole, most of these were just medieval lodges. You know, these are the, the local offices on the ground. It's their properties, a bit like the woodman's cottages and the keeper's cottages you see around the forest today. And that's what these were. But yeah, the king did come hunting. So Edward III was a very regular visitor and Richard II also visited and used some of these lodges. I had some upgraded for his own benefit. And another one was was upgraded with a chapel and such like as well. So yeah, I mean, the king certainly came. And of course, that's really one of the high points in the forest history. Another point was during the reign of Edward I, when we had Eleanor de Castile, Eleanor of Castile. She was, she was very interested the queen, in the Edward's wife. Yeah, the first wife of Edward I. She really took an interest. She was granted the forest in dower, but then she took advantage of her position to acquire all of the valuable bits and pieces of the forest. So she acquired the manor of Lindhurst, to which went the forestership of the Lindhurst bailiwick, but also the stewardship of the forest. And then very soon after, there was a, a rather unfortunate uh, legal affair whereby a lot of the forests of the fee, the hereditary forests that had been around since the creation of the forest, were sort of like turfed out of their offices for misbehaviour and she acquired those offices as well and therefore acquired all of the bailiwicks within the forest under her control and therefore all of the income from those. And so she also gained the income from some of the forest heirs that were held. And so she really did see the forest as a benefit to her. And one piece of evidence of her coming um, is the place known Queen's Bower. Now Queen's Bower, there's a medieval hunting lodge there or medieval lodge site and it's called Queen's Bower so everyone thinks oh where the Queen that must have been where she hunted from etc etc but that's actually not the case the lodge is called Queen's Bower Lodge but it's in a woodland called Queen's Bower it's named after the woodland and the woodland is named after the fact that there was a mill at Boulderford and in Boulderford Mill there was a chamber for the Queen and that belonged to Lintus Manor. So when the Queen was staying at Lintus, she had her private little getaway down at Boldford Mill and the woodland next door became known as Queen's Bower. And then when they built a later lodge there, the lodge was named after the wood and became Queen's Bower Lodge. So that's a sort of place name, Queen's Bower, which exists today and is named after Queen Eleanor of Castile. How amazing. Think of Edward the first wife. This must have been... Uh... Must have been a refuge for her. Yeah, absolutely. And while he was away fighting the Scots and Which fighting the Welsh was, yeah. and you know fighting everyone else, you know she could get away here. Mind you, she was quite a canny woman. She was quite the businesswoman. She certainly acquired a lot of wealth. And when she died, I was making inquiry over 
all of the properties she'd actually acquired and she'd actually asked for that she'd actually requested that that there should be an inquiry over over how all these properties came to her and um, yeah a lot of people were compensated thereafter right Richard where are we off to now well I think now the world is getting a bit adverse yeah. you should drop down into the valley and get into the shelter of the woodland as we look out the woodland below us you can see it's largely dominated by oak and particularly this section over here this was planted during the Napoleonic Wars. Oh yeah. So this is over 200 year old oak and it was planted basically because we needed a navy. So the rise of silviculture was really driven by supplying the naval interests. And so here, yes, we've still got this old oak and in a commercial sense, you know, it's well over its sort of felling age. Usually you'd fell oak at about 120 years old, but in the forest because of its history and because of the fighting over it and how it's valued by the local population that has been in the past as well, they're not allowed to actually clear the oak until it's 200 year old. Okay. And so this woodland here was planted in the Napoleonic times to for a navy that turned into ironclads. Yeah, never needed it, Never we? needed it. So by the time those trees were planted in 1810, 1811, that sort of period, these enclosures, those woodlands were planted then. 200 years later, well... <laughs> oh, we're glad they're there. We're glad we're there, and but it, we don't need them anymore. Not for a wooden navy. So you have walked like nobody else. You have walked over every inch of this forest. You were born and raised here, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been in the forest, so... Uh, I was pretty much feral as a kid, you know, I think <laughs> the parents would prefer me uh, out in the forest charging around rather than getting up the mischief, so uh, I think they put up with it, so I can't complain about uh, having the forest as my playground, and, uh, and, and you, it's continued and so. Just give everyone at home a sense of what you were telling me, like, you're out, whether it's netting birds, doing conservation work, archaeology in the archives. I mean, just tell me about some of the range of things, forest activities that you do, because it's everything. Yeah, well, I am a forest nerd. Um, you know, <laughs> that's me. Um, I suppose uh, growing up in the forest and doing stuff, even with my mates, we'd go out in the forest and make rope swings and stuff like that, as you do as a kid. But I was also like catching snakes and, you know, go fishing down the river. And well, the other thing was, was the thing that got me into history, I suppose, just go out and collect bullets and and sort of old ordnance and stuff off the old ranges from the Second World War, because the new forest was obviously full of military encampments and such like, and airfields during the Second World War, because it was on the south coast. It was a really sort of strategic location for sort of the military. And so you used to go out and collect the bullets and things. I had quite a collection and occasionally got in trouble with taking ordnance back home that was, uh, <laughs> that was a suspect. So we just stumbled into a depression in the ground. Yeah, as you see, it's quite old. It's very much sort of like worn down. You hardly notice it as a man-made object, but it is very much a human intervention. It's a clay pit. And this is where they were digging the clay to make pottery during the Roman period. Wow. So there have been Roman villas across this landscape? Not Roman villas as such, probably just potter's huts. Yeah. But if we go up there, we'll find an area where they were actually doing the industrial processing of what? the pottery and anything that failed to meet expectations was thrown into a large pile. Oh, brilliant. This yes. is an animal hole here, because obviously you can't just go around digging anywhere you like in the forest. Yeah. But there's animal holes, and where the animals have been digging, I did find this one the other day, so, uh, you know, they dig into it, and uh, so obviously the soil builds up over the top, and uh, in amongst all this... There you go. Little Roman pottery. Yes. Yeah, 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 see? Roman pottery. Down there's another bit there, so that's... A, Completely different place. Oh yeah, that's different, yeah, very yeah. different colour. So, I mean, most of the forest pottery is greyware, which is 
Oh, that's a nice big chunk there, that. Oh, diagnostic. Oh, ah, yeah. This is a, this is a um, mortaria. You see the actual bits of flint in there. Oh, is that deliberate? They yeah, left, to, didn't they? Is yeah, that to actually... To well, they're sprinkled to in there to, oh to gosh, make a rough that. surface. It's beautiful, so it's a... A mortaria. So a mortar, a mortar and pestle, if you like, you see. And this is your tableware. But it's quite an important industry they had in the forest. It's like sort of regionally important in southern England. There's another similarly important industrial area in Oxfordshire, and they basically sort of expanded up to halfway in between pretty much and uh, if you lived nearer the new forest you ended up with new forest greyware on your table yeah and if you live near oxford you had oxfordshire greyware on the table it's gray because it's uh, fired in non-oxidizing condition in reducing conditions and therefore the actual clay doesn't change color it just goes dark whereas if it's done in oxidizing conditions it goes orange and so hence if you've got greyware the pot, yeah. I mean, so we're talking hundreds of thousands of shards underneath our feet now. Yeah, well, you, can, you can see how high this mound is compared to the surrounding soil. 1,700 yeah. years since, the actual soil levels have built up over the top, and as the animals have moved about, sort of mixed up the soil. So as the animals go down, but down towards the bottom, it will be more or less solid pottery. What is it with the Romans and pottery? Why do we associate? Did they make more pottery than the? The Celts, loosely defined, who came before them, or was that? Is it a Roman thing? Well, I mean, I mean, it's just a bit more organised, aren't they? I mean, you know, you have much more capitalist society, I guess. I mean, if you're living in a sort of a fairly woodland environment in the Bronze Age, what would you do? Well, you'd probably just make a bowl out of wood and such like. But you know, once you start having mass-produced pottery in markets it reduces the cost of those and it can be made much more regularly so and they could be sent off to london culture france yeah it wasn't that we weren't making pottery we just weren't doing it on a commercial scale in fact when the romans turned up they wanted pottery supplied to their army and there was a, a native pottery industry down at paul and they made what's called black burnished ware but because the army required pottery they basically said right you can supply us and so what started off as a small industry become a much larger industry because it was supporting the Roman Empire if you like it was supporting the military across the British Isles so we're into a very different part of the forest now these trees what 150 200 years old yeah we these ones were planted 1852-53 there was an interest in the forest it hadn't really been there before and that was the interest of the general public and the general public started coming to the forest in larger numbers with the coming of the railway. So it made the forest accessible. And by the time there was a select committee held on the future of the new forest in 1875, there was so much public interest in the forest for all sorts of reasons, from a sort of landscape point of view, from wildlife point of view, from a historical landscape point of view, all sorts of things. That public interest really swayed things in favour of the commoners and away from the Crown, so the Crown could no longer keep it. In fact, the New Forest was actually described as a national park way before we actually had national parks in this country. Oh, wow. That's very interesting, Richard. So, in a way, the New Forest, as well as being very ancient, is also the first of this kind of modern kind of recreational landscape it's like almost the first national park where people came together as a nation thought we need to keep this place it's so special we like hanging out there we think it's good for this country well yeah i mean the new forest was designated a forest for its recreational benefit and of course it was also called a national park 
back in the 19th century and it continues to fulfill those needs, the recreational needs, not just of one person sat on his throne, <laughs> but of the whole populace, the whole nation. This episode is brought to you by the Recharge in Nature project, a new partnership between BMW and National Parks UK. I know that I need to recharge in nature. I often come back here if I've been abroad or been working inside, looking at a screen, been in the big city. I come here and I feel about a thousand times better. And now there's a partnership between BMW and National Parks UK to enhance electric car charging networks across all 15 national parks, making travel by electric vehicles to these locations much easier, which is great because it means when I'm on big cross-country journeys now, going filming and recording for the podcast, I can stop in a national park and have a little walk while I'm recharging. It's the best news ever. They're also supporting local initiatives focused on enabling nature restoration, biodiversity and well-being through the Recharge in Nature Fund. So to discover more about the Recharge in Nature project, go to bmw.co.uk slash national parks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.